I'm Jessica Peresta, host of the Elementary Music Teacher Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Ermgard Brown, and she's written a wonderful book called Sister Jane. Kirk has recognized Sister Jane as a best book of 2021, and this July, the book will appear on Kirkus's list of top books to read. Awesome conversation. What a wonderful read. Thanks for listening. And then, by the way, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews, and uh, left a review. Could you do that for me? You're awesome. Enjoy the show. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Ermgard Brown knows a good book when she sees one. For 28 years, she had stacked shelves as a librarian. She also recognizes a good theatrical story, having written, produced, and acted in a one-woman play that toured for two years. Now she is broken into book publishing with a character-driven, plot-twisting novel that examines how society reacts to people who make major life dif- uh, changes and discover their true talents later in life. It also explores whether we really believe in miracles or if social media, the government, community, and the news media would distort whatever the truth really is. A little bit about her book, Sister Jane. All her life, Jane believes she is a small-town ordinary, until she isn't. Some people brand her as a witch, while others believe she is a demon. Her family thinks she's ready for the nursing home, and a down-and-out news reporter assumes she's a fake. But nobody, including Jane, can figure out how she does it. Heal the sick. All the sick. All the time. Is it a gift of God? The church is divided. Then everything erupts when the foreigners arrive along with members of the government and the scientists. Will Jane become a pawn or save herself? Ermgard, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hello. Hi. So nice to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. And uh, let's start first by talking about this from your biography. For 28 years, you stacked shelves as a librarian. Could you talk about your career as a librarian and, and what you liked about it? Oh, Sure. It, I'll tell you, though, it, is, it was a second career for me, and I never in my wildest imagination thought that I would end up in a library. But I, I, was, I was married to my husband at the time. It was my second husband. We ended up in Maryland, and he turned to me one day and said, you need a job. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so no more of that pursuing the arts thing. And so I went out and decided I'd go get a job. I had no idea where I'd end up. I just started knocking on doors, and then I ended up walking into a library and one little part-time job led to another part-time job. And the next thing I knew I was working full time and I realized, my gosh, I like these people. These people are smart. I enjoy talking to these people. And then I had a real uh, memory come forth in which I was a child. And I spent a lot of time in the library as a child. And I remember pushing my entire body up against the books and hoping that the words would just drop into my body. And it was an osmosis thing. So, yes, I have had a long, long connection with the library. And working there ended up being a wonderful combination, using my gifts as well as uh, learning new things, which I love to do. That's cool. And just as a note, I mean, like, uh, and just talking with you as you're talking about those memories as a child, it's 
the same here. I spent a lot of time in the library. My uh, family, especially where I grew up in the summers, the, the library had uh, special programs and things like this from art to, to uh, drawing and things like that, which I liked. And, and, uh, but there was just something about a li- uh, the library and the books had a certain smell, odor that I loved. <laughs> it's just like there you t- go. today it'll send my thoughts back if I, ha- if I get that, uh, that uh, aroma happening. You know, and, it's, and it's funny because in that place they also had uh, the bookmobile. And, uh, oh, sure. and the bookmobile was cool. So it was, it's another like off, offshoot of it. So I love that stuff. So we got good stuff. I, something else that I got to, there's no way I can and not mention. I mean, you wrote, produced and performed in a, in your one woman play. You got to talk about that. Well, sure. When I, um, was younger, <laughs> when I was younger, I went to New York city to become rich and famous. And, uh, you see how that worked out. And I got my master's degree in acting, and I was very committed to the theater. Uh, But it just wasn't working out. I mean, as I tell people, you know, New York busted my chops. And so I ended up going back home to Indiana. I also became a person of faith during that time in New York. And I wanted to combine the two things together, and I couldn't figure out how to do that. And in the end, someone gave me the idea of trying to do some kind of a theatrical production that did combine those two. And so then I did this one woman show based on the uh, first book of Matthew that talks about the genealogy of Jesus. And so I took all the bad girls that are mentioned there and uh, turned them into a script and then managed to uh, write it and perform it uh, throughout the uh, middle Atlantic as well as in the South. So it was a wonderful experience. I was on the bleeding edge of doing theatrical things in churches. Really people weren't doing it back then. That's cool. That's very cool. So, uh, what <laughs> Thank a, you. what a neat, uh, um, avenue to pursue, especially the way you, how you wrote and what you thought about and making that play. Uh, that's, that's so cool. But uh, yeah, I can imagine what it's like being in New York, trying to figure out how to make it in the theater. It's a tough road to hoe, but you know, I mean, people do manage it, but I think that for me, it, it ended up not being so the best way for me, I think. And I, I believe that I got a little bit caught up in, in a, a, a lifestyle, you know, prior to really coming into my faith, but I can't, got into a lifestyle that was actually somewhat dangerous. And so I'm kind of glad that I left that behind, although I would, don't regret having lived in New York City. I'm so glad what I learned from being in a big city. In fact, I've lived in a lot of big cities from Chicago to New York to Atlanta, and now I live in this little small town, and uh, it's been interesting to see that change as well. Oh, that's cool. Very cool. I, you know, and obviously with the I, – somewhere in there, there's got to be some major influence that happens from the writing of this, the screenplay or, or working around all the books and all that sort of stuff. I mean, how did your acting and playwriting career prepare you to launch your, de, your debut novel? Well, I think that my interest in theater, not only as an actress, but also I started directing plays and writing more and more plays that are kind of like on a back shelf, really. But I love the way people talk, and I love characters. And so that's, you know, it was interesting that you picked up on that and called my book a character-driven book, because I believe that, too. And that's what's tr- what is the first thing that comes to my mind are the people in the in the story. And I want to make them as rich as I possibly can. And I think that being aware of dialogue and being aware of how spe- people speak really has en- enhanced my ability to capture that in, in writing narrative. Well, cool. That's, that, you know, 
thanks for talking about that. This is this is kind of neat how you're you're uh, you know it's, it's kind of kind of all melded towards uh, this writing. And and so I gotta I gotta say, let's go ahead and start talking about your book, Sister Jane. I mean, where did the okay. inspiration for the story come from? Well, uh, you know, I've written several books actually. You know, they're all in drawers waiting to be re-edited, and and uh, I was have been working on writing, I'd say, for the last 10 years. I was uh, captured by a book by, called Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. I really recommend that to anyone who wants to think about starting to write because she really makes it easy to do that. And then the second thing that I got involved in was something called NaNoWriMo. Don't know if you've ever heard of that, National Novel Writing Month. It's for the month of November. You're supposed to write 50,000 words. So I did that a couple of times. All these were learning experiences, and it was really, really good. And But I thought I was finally ready to really, really focus on, on a, a book that I wanted to try to get to, all the way to publish. And so I, when I put this out to the universe, as they say, to the muse, to God, however you want to say it, what I asked for was that I could, I could have a character that would be a, a character of faith, but that the, that the book itself would not beat people over the head. You know, I don't, I don't like that when you, when you have this premise, you know, that it's going to come out with, oh, and Jesus is wonderful, and boom, 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 let's make sure everybody believes like that. That's not what I wanted. I wanted it to be a real experience and to be uh, just incorporated into the story. And then I got this idea of what if, what if, what if, what if a, a, the things that we say that we believe in, especially as Christians, you know, we say we believe in miracles, we say we believe in doing this or doing that, but what if it really, really happened? And what would the reactions be? Because in the end, sure, the main character has her response to this gift that was given to her, but what's really interesting to me as well is what about the people around her? How do they react? And what does that say about our culture and our society in terms of how we respond to the unexpected? That's awesome. They, uh, you know, it's, uh, um, and it's, it's very poignant. I, I, just to, you know, how, how people would react, how people, you know, if just simply in believing, I mean, whether right. they, they would want to believe or not and, or would attack the thought that it's real. And, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. Cause that's, that's a huge part. You know, it, one of the things I, I got to ask you this: Who are you writing for? I mean, who do you who do you envision as your audience? Well, they do say that's important, you know, as you start writing your book. And I have to admit that when I first started, I pretty much thought I was writing to people like me. So, second half of life, folks, probably predominantly women, uh, and that's who I thought my audience would be. What is interesting to me is that that is not really the audience, the only audience that I've been hitting, and I was so shocked when. Thank you very much. You know, you're a guy. And I was starting to get more and more. I had a lot of guys who were reading the book. And I finally asked one of them, I said, what is the draw? I'm so surprised you're drawn to the book, you know. And that particular man said to me, oh, but I know these people. <laughs> so once again, that the idea of the characters being familiar somehow are the things that resonate. And that there was just enough of a thriller aspect by the end of the book to keep people reading. And so I started out one way and then realized that it really does cross over into other other areas. But I, I did start that way, saying I was writing for women, especially uh, women in the second half of life. I think a lot of women 
my age, of a certain age, um, become invisible. And, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't want that. I don't like that. I don't think we should be invisible. I think that we have so much to give and so much to communicate and to, to share with people younger than us. You know, I mean, I love the concept of a wise woman that I could ever be called a wise woman. That would mean a lot to me, you know, that I would be able to, to impart something that I've learned in my life. That is awesome. It really is. And, you know, it's, uh, and you've said so much in just a little bit where you're talking about, cause you know, cause that's kind of where the thought of, you know, who are you writing for and, uh, you know, having that in mind and all that. And, uh, and then a, a big part about, uh, you know, um, as our ages, <laughs> some of the world will pass you by and not even think about it. And, uh, um, I think that this is, this is powerful. It is cool. Thanks for sharing that. I, Thank you. You know, what, one of the things that I, as we get into the book, I mean, Sister Jane explores what happens if one suddenly discovers they have a gift. And uh, I was wondering if uh, um, you would explain what your character chooses to do with that gift. Sure. So when she, first of all, what I think is also important to mention is that when, when this thing happens to Jane, she is totally what I would call unworthy. I mean, there's absolutely nothing that she has done to earn this opportunity. She didn't look for it. You know, I mean, she's basically, you know, a cat gets hit by a car and she's, oh, no, you know, and runs to the cat. I mean, this is just a normal human reaction to something sad. And out of that, you know, she says a little prayer, like, you know, the, that, it's that kind of I'll pray for you kind of thing, you know, not, not in any kind of serious way. And suddenly she has this gift. And I think the first thing is that she doesn't believe it's real either. You know, her own response is that this can't be happening to me. You know, I'm not, I don't, I'm nobody. This can't be happening to me. And so she begins to test these things, to test out this, is it really real? And in the midst of that, she herself still has the voices in her head of people who have somewhat dominated her throughout her life. You know, she's lived it, she's been in a long-term marriage in which the husband was very dominant. And so his voice is still with her, you know, and when she's thinking about, is this possible it's happening? And that voice is saying, don't be ridiculous. You know, a lot of that goes through. And I think that does go through our heads when we have experiences or we are, we have opportunities to do something bigger than ourselves. There's going to be that old voice, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or a teacher or someone who is a negative influence on our on our making those decisions, you know, doing something outside of the box. And so we're going to hear that voice. And so a lot of the book for Jane is contending with those old voices, contending with her habits of how she reacts to difficult situations and to try to learn new ways, new ways of, of moving forward. And so the gift is just a, I mean, this concept, this idea of a gift in the book, it's really just a huge example of smaller things that happen in real life, in our lives. You know, it's exaggerated so that we can see how we would react and what, what the steps might be to move forward. And it really is, it just makes you wonder because uh, as you read and, you know, and one of the things I was going to get you to do, which you've kind of already kind of touched on just a little bit, is that uh, she runs into some interesting reactions from other people. <laughs> right. 
And I was just wondering if you would uh, comment a little bit more about uh, um, how people treat her um, with this sure. gift. Sure. Well, I think that, you know, she's, she grew up in the church, right? And so she's, that's the first person she goes to is her pastor since she's now a widow. She did, would have gone to her husband and he would have really shot her down because he was already shooting her down in her head. But uh, she goes to her pastor, you know, thinking, okay, I'm going to, you know, lay this out there. And of course he, he's like patronizing, you know, that she didn't expect that, you know, I mean, he, he, I'm not putting down pastors, believe me. I mean, I've been in the church for a long time, but it, it can happen, you know? And so that's that first reaction. And then she's a little bit, that makes her wary and she's afraid to tell her friends because she how are they going to react? And then when she does end up having this huge experience and now her family's response and instead of supporting her, her, they are just, they think she's totally nuts because they can't let her out of the box that they have her in. You are the grandmother. This is your job. This is what you do. You don't do anything outside of that. And the only thing that changes that is that her son-in-law, her son-in-law, after she has an experience healing the granddaughter who falls down the steps, the son-in-law is somewhat curious about, oh, well, maybe, maybe she really can do this. And so then he proceeds to put her through a test of all things, you know, a test to see if he can, if she can heal his mother who's uh, in hospice. But the thing is, is that even though he becomes a believer in her and supports her, it is ultimately for his own gain. He wants to monetize her gift and to see how much money they can all make, you know, from it. And, and you know, so that's a crazy response. And then, you know, and over time now, the social media gets a hold of this thing. The reporter gets a hold of this thing. So what ends up happening is that she and the people who do support her, who do believe her, are not the people who normally would be around her. And so she has her own experience of dealing with like uh, very charismatic people, you know, who are like into the praise the Lord thing. You know, for her, that's like totally foreign, you know. So she has a conglomeration of the people who believe are peculiar to her and the people who are familiar to her do not believe. And so she's constantly at at odds trying to find a balance point you know trying to find a balance point and the only time she finally gets a little a grip on what is happening to her is this random meeting with of all things a nun again outside her norm she's not catholic she doesn't know anything about catholics or or, or miracles or any of that thing and so she does get to spend some time away from everything and everybody and to get some direction from this nun who helps her and to understand this is what's happening to you and you have the choice to either keep doing it or don't do it. But just know that you have the freedom to say no to this. And so she gets a little bit of a, a foundation in order to handle things, which is a good thing because then the next group of people who start entering into her world are, or are high, high power people. And that is again, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but if I had some high power person, you know, bring me into their office and make demands of me, it would be pretty scary. That'd be very scary. That would be, uh, <laughs> especially, especially when you're figuring out yourself and whatever, you know, right. 
and what this is that you're now have this capability right. of and what it's going to, I mean, there's all kinds of things that it makes me think about. It's like, you know, what's this going to lead to? And, and uh, you know, what's interesting is that you're dealing with some themes that, you know, people may not have this gift, but it sometimes, you know, when someone gets attention because of something they've done that was seen as good, and then others might get jealous of them or something like that. And so it's, you play into some of these interesting themes that, you know, you do see happen. And, you know, and, and, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I wanted to ask you about is, uh, um, you know, if, if someone were, I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but I, I want to go here a little bit further, whether it's working miracles or whether it's uh, um, some other gift that, that brings some special attention to you. I mean, do you feel like uh, there, there'd also be these negative voices that really, and I don't mean negative, like, no, you don't do this. I mean, almost like hate voices that might appear. Um, well, absolutely. I think we live in a very polarized society right now. And so the people hear what they, what they want to hear. They hear what they are familiar with. And so they're going to interpret what they see and what they hear in, in their own circle of what they have understand or what they think they understand. And so I think that if it's outside the norm, then the response can be very, very negative. And in the book, I do have people who are accusing her of terrible things and standing outside her door with signs and, you know, calling her, uh, you know, that she's a devil worshiper and all these kinds of things. And I think that anything that we do that is outside the norm, we have to be solid somewhere. We have to have some kind of a grounding so that when that, these voices or these attacks or whatever comes to you that is so negative, it's important that we have a, we ourselves who are having the experience or who are making that choice are grounded so that we can uh, handle more easily <clears throat> the attacks. That is not to say that it's not going to affect us emotionally because I think it will, but I think it's important, like I say, to have a grounding. And then the other thing is to have, you know, one or two people who you can trust, you know, so that you're not alone. Uh, you know, friends and and faithful people who take you just as you are, who are believe in you, are really, really important in whatever it is you're doing. You know, even if you don't have a whole coterie of friends, one or two people who will support you is, is really critical. So those are two things, being grounded, knowing who you are, and number two is having uh, having some kind of a cohort around you. That's awesome. I love it. I love it because that's that's great advice. Because uh, um, even if it's not miracles, there's a, there's any number of things where you might run into those those negative forces that that's Absolutely. being that's being nice <laughs> and polite right there. That's uh, that uh, want to ruin your day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, anytime you speak any kind of truth to power, or you are. Uh, you know, and like I said, we're in a polarized society. And if you now, it seems that when you disagree with someone, uh, it seems to open a door to very harsh criticism, you know, uh, harsh words in a way that we haven't had in the past. So it's, it's, it's important to know, to know where you stand, but to, you know, respond to those things in as loving a way as possible. Love it. Awesome advice. Uh, I got to ask you, I got to ask you this. This is so cool. Speaking of great things, <laughs> okay. Kirkus named Sister Jane in December 2021 as a best of books for 2021. Could you talk about how that felt for you? 
oh my gosh, it was outstanding. It was a wonderful feeling. And, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm a first time author. It's my first book. And, and I did have a publisher, I had a small publisher, but I don't have an agent at this point. I'd love to have one if you know somebody. But I mean, you know, so I'm really doing this myself and putting, you know, having to do a lot of the marketing myself. And to have a, a publication like Kirkus, which from the librarian standpoint, that's like, like super duper important, but it also opened up some doors for me, you know, because being a librarian or now a retired librarian, I really wanted my book in libraries and that Carcass Review was fantastic for me and opened up a lot of doors and uh, it made some other possibilities come up. My sister Jane's now an audio book, by the way, that just came out about three weeks ago. So that's been really great. And it's given me the momentum to do a companion book to Sister Jane, a little novella that overlaps Sister Jane. So, you know, all things, it, it just opened doors. And Kirkus has just uh, also announced and contacted me. They are also going to be uh, designating my Sister Jane in June of this year as a book that needs to be discovered. So I'm going to be a list in a list of 30 books that need that they are saying need to be discovered. So there's another opportunity from Kirkus. So I am so grateful and excited about what hap- will happen next. That's so cool! Congratulations on that. That's uh, thank you, thank you. Things is, are moving. That is awesome. I, and I can imagine the types of doors that it's opening. So, well, that's it. Just tells everyone they need to read Sister Jane. So uh, good stuff. <laughs> the uh, well, congratulations on that. And I and I got to ask you because I know about the companion guide, and I think I've oh. I thought I read in something you wrote in a little blog or something like this that you're working on another book that be besides the companion guide. So you want to? Yes. So the- so the companion is out. It's that was something I self-published because I wanted to do it quickly. I actually wanted it to come out in March for Lent because it's called Sister Jane's Lenten Journal. So it was a little bit of a marketing ploy that I have to confess. I was I have been working, and now it's supposed to come out this year. Two, two things are going to come out this year at the end of the year. One is a memoir that I co-authored with my friends from Zambia who have a children's uh, village that where they have served for 14 years, and it's called Evidence Now Seen. That's a nonfiction book. And then I'm also working on what I call my Russian book. Uh, it is about uh, three orphans who are separated by the Russian social system in the year 2000 and how they struggle to try to find each other again. Um, that came out of my own adoption experiences with my three children. Excellent. Excellent. Well, good luck with that. And I look forward to you. You need to let me know when it comes out so we can, we can talk some more. Oh, so, all right. You have a best deal. I like that idea. That'd be awesome. So, uh, um, I got to ask you this cause something that I found out is that, um, you know, as we're getting ready to close, you have to explain why you recently decided to jump out of a plane to celebrate your 70th birthday. So <laughs> please talk to talk about that. <laughs> Well, I want you to know that my family members and my friends, that cohort of people who I said are so important to me, were like, are you out of your mind? (laughs) So, I mean, the the, the ongoing joke was, you you want to jump out of a perfectly good plane? (laughs) But I, I, I did want to, I wanted to challenge myself with something that I'm afraid of. I was, uh, I'm afraid of heights and I wanted to, to, to kind of give myself a a little point in time where I could say anything that happens after this cannot be any worse than jumping out of a plane. And so it, it was a little bit of a, there's a word that I can't think of it right now, but it's a, a point in time that I could to 
tackle and say, okay, you did that. And it was, in the end, amazingly enough, not that scary. I, I couldn't believe it. And I was, of course, I was also, it was a tandem jump. So I was with a very hunky Australian young man. And so that was fun. And he was very kind to me. And it was a very spiritual experience, actually. And uh, so I think that was a lot of it, though, is with to be able to say, my life's not over yet. 70 is nothing. I am moving forward. I've got lots of things to do, not just write, but to experience life, to travel, to be with people, all of those things. And so it really gave me a little jump start for the second half of my life or the, whatever, the last quarter. I don't know. <laughs> that is too cool. That's, that is awesome. I can, and I can imagine just, you should just try it, do it, hey, go hey, for hey. it. You know, it's, it's funny. I've been in planes. I, I used to be an officer in the army and I've been in planes where, um, they're going out the back door. I'm going actually from one place to another, but I'm watching them go. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, I like my plane. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I like being sitting in my plane. Yes, exactly. Uh, Um, but that's so cool. I keep that in mind because I, I've been at the point where, you know, I had others going, come on, you can go with us. I said, yeah, I'm supposed to be on a runway in a little bit. So, but uh, what a neat thing. Congrats it's, on that, too. It's a, it's a big thrill. And, you know, I was mostly with college-age kids, of course. Of I mean, course. There was nobody else as old as me in the plane. And they just were so enthusiastic for me and with me, you know. And so we all, like, had this big party afterwards, you know. And they were, were all hugging. I mean, the rush, the dopamine rush was really worth it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, I... I got to ask you a question because you kind of touched on this a little bit throughout the whole time. I mean, obviously you kind of have some advice for older women who are seeking to discover, you know, who they are and and maybe uh, making some changes. Can you, can you share some of that just as a specific? Well, I think, you know, I think that uh, again, that idea of being in a box and thinking this is, you know, all you can do. And I don't, I think it's so important to, just try a few things, easy peasy, you know, go somewhere with somebody, you know, do something that's a little bit outside the realm of what you normally do. Um, take time to enjoy what is, you know, just spend a little bit more time in nature and appreciate the things that we do have. Maybe keep a gratitude journal, you know, and start to, to review the things that that are a wonderful thing so that when the next thing comes, it's not so scary, you know, because we're already saying, oh, these are good things that are happening in my life. Because let's face it, as we get older, we're going to have more and more challenges, body challenges. I, I call it body betrayal, you know. And so you've, you've got to be willing to, like, face that, embrace that, welcome that so that you can see what else is there. So I think that's the main thing. And, um, I mean, in the end, what is there to lose at this point to try some new things and, uh, you know, get a partner, a friend to go with you. Sometimes that helps. That's excellent. I love the advice. Good stuff. In regard, before we close, could you let everyone know where they could connect and learn more about you and your books? Absolutely. Absolutely. I do have a website. It's a little bit, you have to be able to spell my name, at least get started on it. That's armgardbrown.com. So I-R-M-G-A-R-D-E-Brown.com. I'm pretty sure that if you hit Sister Jane, be careful because Rita Mae Brown has books that have the character named Sister Jane. So I'm like going, no, I'm not Rita Mae Brown. But anyway, I am, uh, I do have a website. You can buy the books from the website, but of course I'm on Amazon and all those online outlets. 
Um, and uh, now that I have the audiobook, I'm on Audible and those places as well. And I'd love to get email from people. I respond right away. I'm happy to be in book clubs. I can do Zoom. All those things are a way to contact me and to engage with me. So I'd love to come and visit people around the country. That is excellent. And I will have that information in the show notes so they can find easily use that to uh, connect back out to your website and, and connect with you. So good stuff. I, Perfect. I got Thank two you. more two more questions for you that have nothing to do with your book or what we've been talking okay. about. And the first one goes like this. If you have so much going on that you become overwhelmed, how do you overcome the desire to quit? Well, at this point, I will say that I'm on, on a pretty good, on a high. So the idea of quitting just doesn't even, hasn't even come into my, <laughs> you know, I'm just, I keep, I'm ready to go. The Energizer Bunny has still got a pretty good tank, you know. But I will say that my current expression of faith, which is through contempt, contemplative prayer, which is another way of saying meditation, you know, but being quiet, being silent, spending time alone, 20 minutes a day, you know, whatever. That again goes back to grounding. So if you want to keep moving forward, then I think you need to be willing to be quiet too. And so I would say that that's probably the best thing to do is to spend that time in quiet. And, you know, if you're not sure about that, there's plenty of stuff out there, you know, plenty of little apps that will help you do, you know, three minutes of silence, five minutes, six minutes, you know, you build yourself up. But those times of silence are really essential uh, to being able to, to keep going, you know, to keep going. And, um, yeah, that's my, my little two bits on that one. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's cool. I appreciate you sharing that because a lot of people need some thoughts about how to how to – you know, kick themselves back in the right direction in the game. Right. So I love it. Yeah. Uh, last question. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Well, you know, I saw that question that you were going to ask me, and I'm so glad I had a couple of minutes to think about it. But there was one teacher that, boom, just jumped into my mind. So I'm figuring that's the one. When I was in high school, I had a drama teacher, all right, so Mr. Hirsch, thank you so much, and he was the one who uh, really encouraged me to get up on the stage, and it was under his direction that I was able to be in the, of all things, you're going to get, you're going to see the irony of this, I was in the play The Miracle Worker, all right, I got to play Annie Sullivan, nice. uh, who also is a teacher, and uh, that was like, I mean, I still have a deep response to that experience and I also think of that I love to learn and so that experience of being in the play going on to be in theater but also this idea of teaching and learning also came from him and to believe in myself and to know that uh, I can uh, embrace feelings and to express them uh, through theater and through uh, other other avenues, which now in the end has come up through writing. Thank you so much. That's so cool. It's, it's neat to, to hear about uh, people who've had an impact on us. Uh, um, Ernbard, it was awesome talking with you. Thanks for sharing your book, Sister Jane. Uh, just people got to find it. I mean, Kirkus has made it uh, one you got to find, as well as uh, one of their best books of 2021, which is awesome. And uh, looking forward to your next book coming out. Uh, wishing you the best in all you do. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. 
Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.